0: Today on The Daily Scoop Podcast from The Scoop News Group, keeping young talent in the federal workforce, the road ahead for the government's zero trust journey. It's Thursday, December 15th, 2022. Welcome to The Daily Scoop Podcast where you'll hear the latest news and trends facing government leaders. I'm the host of The Daily Scoop Podcast, Billy Mitchell. The number one CRM, Salesforce Customer 360 for Public Sector, is an integrated platform for public services. It features relationship management, case management, and lots more. To learn more, go to salesforce.com government. An estimated one-third of federal employees will be reaching retirement age within the next two years, according to the Partnership for Public Service. A new report from the partnership makes recommendations to the federal government for retaining Generation X and Generation Z employees. Jonathan Album is federal CTO at ServiceNow and former CIO at the Department of Agriculture. Jonathan, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, The data shows that Gen Z is severely underrepresented in federal government, and for those employed by a federal agency, they're also much more likely to leave a job in government So based on the findings of this study that you did with the partnership, why is Gen Z so difficult to recruit and retain to work in the federal government?
1: Well, um, Billy, thanks for having me on to discuss this topic. I think this is, uh, you know, really important for our federal government to think about. Um, We're going to need Gen Z to be a vibrant part of the workforce, so we need to be thinking not just about recruiting, but really retaining. You know, from a recruiting perspective, you know, it's not hard, it's not necessarily easy to get into the government, irrespective of your of your generation. Um, the application process can be daunting. It's not as simple as submitting, you know, a resume uh, necessarily. So, for for younger workers, for kids coming out of college, um, when you have options of uh, higher paying jobs uh, outside of government with less complex application processes, I think it could be very attractive to. You know, look elsewhere. could be intimidated by by the process, and you know, we we don't have many uh, paid internships in government. There's some, but maybe not enough. And more of these might entice people to be interested in government students, and then there's a glide path, you know, into into a job after graduation. And, and I think one other thing that 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 came up was, you know, we know that trust in government is low, and. Uh, When you look at some of the responses from Gen Z employees, they expressed concern about government because of uh, shutdowns and, um, you know, it's not necessarily a place where uh, they want to work, although they do want the opportunity to serve. And they don't see a government agency necessarily as the only way to serve. Uh, the public and 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 do good work. There's lots of ways to do it. so recruiting has, you know, I think some opportunities in it, but it's really in retention where we focused a lot in this work. and you know the the gen Z employees have um almost only experienced work in a hybrid environment. Many of them graduated during covid have come into the workforce inside and outside of the government in, a way that's been uh, unlike what many of us experienced beforehand. So they they expect flexible workplaces. And, you know, as the government and uh, organizations in general return to hybrid or maybe back in person full time, you know, that's going to have an impact on on retention. And, you know, we mentioned pay for a second as well. There's there's a, a lot of opportunity um, for Gen Z to make more money and, uh, jobs outside of the federal government. They're concerned about financial stability and student loan debts we've all read about. So, um, pay, pay is a factor. And I happen to know, uh, one, um, young worker who was at an agency who was, um, really hoping to stay in the government, but she, she was unable to, um, move about in a way that gave her, um, uh, high enough salary so she could do some simple things like move out of her parents' house after graduating college. So you know it has a it has a um, far-reaching implication. You know in terms of people's uh, desire to live their lives and and um, you know be adults. So I think there's a there's a factor there. And, you know one of the one of the last things that you know I think is important from a retention perspective is uh, culture. You know we we have uh in government sometimes very hierarchical bureaucratic organizations and many of us grew up with that and we've adjusted to it but you know gen z civil servants they want flat organization structures which you know, are of course are very very attractive and you know they really prioritize collaboration um empathic leadership uh and very inclusive decision-making processes and you know gen x managers we didn't necessarily grow up that way we may not be creating environments that support that kind of work. And I think it's really important to understand what uh, Gen Z employees need in the workplace so we can adjust our styles. We have to meet these workers where they are. They're going to um, replace us. They're going to fill these really critical jobs over over the coming years. So we can't expect everyone just to adapt to the way we work. We have to be ready to make adjustments ourselves. And I think that's an important one.
0: And I'm glad you mentioned Gen X because the report takes a focus on that generation as well. And comparatively, while only two generations apart, it seems drastically different in what it values. And it's a much larger percentage of the federal workforce. So uh, from the report, what do you deduce can managers do to better cater to meet the needs of this generation?
1: Sure. Um, I think there, you know, you're, you're right. There are there are definitely differences. Um, there you know, from a, uh, go back to culture again for for a second. There were, you know, we we saw that we've read that a lot of uh, Gen X uh, feds can feel taken for granted, and many describe themselves as you know being forgotten or ignored by leaders who who assume the fact that they know how to do their job, and they're doing it well uh, means that they don't know how to innovate. Um, or they don't want to see at the table where, while they've been doing these jobs for you know 25 years or so and doing them doing them well, they have a lot to offer. So how do we pull um, this generation in to the conversation and help them, you know, lead in, in an organization? Um, we heard from several Gen X employees that the opportunity to get into the senior executive service, you know, was uh, was an important factor. So. Candidate develop, senior Executive Service, SES, candidate development programs uh, were something that were noted as uh, being very positive. So we should, you know, continue these programs, have more of them, have them maybe focused on different types of uh, belonging groups uh, or um you know, within agencies or cross agencies, have them be IT focused or have them be cyber focused. Different ways to create, you know, cohorts of of employees to go through these programs together, where they can where they can learn. Um, and you know, uh, lastly, the uh, the the mission is very important to to Gen X employees. I, that was I'm a Gen, I was a Gen X Fed, and and being part of the mission of the Department of Agriculture and the Food and Nutrition Services of places that I worked really meant a lot to me. One of the things that I did when um, I was a Fed and I was Chief Information Officer was I made uh, active effort to get out and see the mission in action, and you could see people use the programs of your agency, it made a real difference in how I thought about my work and how I thought about my role in making, uh, making the Department of Agriculture successful. We didn't have those same opportunities for, for all employees, especially, you know, Gen X employees that are, you know, maybe um, really connected to these missions and it's a factor that keeps them in government. Well, let's, let's do what we can to enhance that and make sure um, they continue to recognize that, uh, their value in the, and the role they can, they contribute.
0: And I'm curious, once you recognize the differences in those different generations, how can you balance supporting the needs of both? And, you know, the other generations we haven't discussed so far, right. uh, all at the same time. So there's, um, you know, I think there are some
1: real important areas of overlap that are a great place to start. You know, We know that flexible work is important for both uh, for both um, Gen Gen X and uh, Gen Z, and I I suspect for every generation. We 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 definitely uh, there might be different reasons why they're important. Gen X employees may be caring for uh, an elderly parent uh, or or have uh, the needs of uh, other family members that you know they have to consider, and Gen Z are more thinking that this is the way work is supposed to be, but. Flexible work environments, hybrid uh, environments, hybrid teams, uh, the technology around those teams that makes sense and and create good experiences, great experiences in an office, I think are are really important. Uh, so that's one thing. I think we can also both be focused. Uh, we can be focused on um, technology capabilities and 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 culture again. The culture, you know, I've, I've talked about a couple times already, but I think I don't think you can. Um, over over communicate the importance of culture here and you know really making sure that um people feel included and valued that they're listened to that they have the opportunity to grow you know service now one of our uh, core values is to create belonging and you know we want everyone who works here to feel like they belong at this at this company and you know i would i would encourage agency leaders to to do something similar and be thinking about why someone who works there feels like they belong there, irrespective of their of their generation. Um, and I think you know when we have this hybrid environment, we have many people who you know may not come into an office or may not be face to face with their colleagues. You know, leaders really need to be even more deliberate about creating a, a culture of co- inclusion. We have to we have to do things that are creating reasons to come together. Um, I heard the term "earn the commute." Recently, if you're a manager, you want somebody to come in. You got to earn it. Well, why? Why are we coming in? Why are we doing this? Well, if it's about belonging, it's about inclusion, it's about uh, coming together. Let Let's do what we can to really emphasize why. And I think if we bring people together, and we focus on on culture, you're you're really meeting an important need for uh, for both generations and and I suspect everyone who works in the organization.
0: And Jonathan, you you emphasized the point that I wanted to go to next in, in that hybrid work environment, the remote change that we've seen over these last few years. And I suspect that the, the results of the study probably would have been pretty different in some regards if it would have been done three years ago prior to COVID-19. So I'm curious, how has COVID-19 affected these trends, if if at all?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Because, you know, we're dealing with, uh, you know, Gen Z workers who may have never been working in an office setting in in their professional careers. So as we return to work in some form or fashion, even if it's uh, a few days a week or a few days pay period, you know, I think we should be offering tailored guidance to JetZ employees that are coming into an office space for the first time. You know, they've been working at home for two years or, or, or more. So maybe they need help adjusting to, to the federal workplace. It, it's different right? And it's a change. And this, I think, could apply maybe in government or outside of government. But being really intentional about providing them that uh, experience and doing it in a way that welcomes them into the office, I think, is is critical. You know, COVID changed everything, obviously. We have different expectations about how we receive service. We have different expectations about how we work. We have different expectations about how we how we communicate. So if we can't um, be mindful of all of those things and incorporate them into our workspaces, into our environments, into our approach as leaders, you know, we're going to um, turn people off. And the the challenging, uh, the, the unfortunate part about that, if we turn off young workers in the federal government, there are plenty of organizations that need these workers. It's a tight labor market. And there will be places that they can go and be very successful and contribute in, uh, you know, meaningful ways. But it may not be in our federal agencies, directly in our agencies agencies, where where we definitely need that next generation to to come in and learn
0: and and serve the public. As we close out, technology, as the the report sort of shows, plays a big role in all of this. Um, And, and, you know, as a former federal CIO, I'd love to to hear your thoughts on how technology can play into that recruitment and retention. And if, you know, uh, there's a federal CIO who's reading this report, what should they take away from it?
1: Well, you know, again, irrespective of the generation, both Gen X and Gen Z um, civil servants, they really value effective digital tools. And you know, when they when they have old technology, uh, legacy technology that that doesn't feel modern, they're frustrated. And they're really frustrated when the technology is not integrated into their work well. So I think that's a just a you know a real call for digital acceleration, really. Using technology platforms, using uh, low-code capabilities to modernize quickly and give people experiences at work that are similar to the technology experiences they have at home. We all know what it's like to interact with our with our favorite brands um, online or on an app. A couple of clicks and you can, you know, get the things that you need. Interacting at work um, in, a, in a federal agency should be as easy and too often it's not so especially for for gen z employees that you know they are you know true you know digital natives they grew up with digital technology from very earliest days so it's uh, it's so natural for them to interact in certain ways if you put them in a, in a work environment that's you know uh, incongruent with that you're going to get a lot of people um feeling like they uh, like they don't belong or it's not the right place for them or it feels old so we we really need to be thoughtful about that and cio should be focused on creating great experiences for uh for their employees and uh, of course for their customers as well and you know I'd argue that if you have um uh, technology that ma- makes your employees very effective uh they're going to be uh, very engaged in their work and that is going to have a very um uh, clear and positive effect on how they serve customers. We can use these this this you know um, focus on customer experience that you know we all have right now, uh, along with. this focus on employee experience that i'm describing and you know think about the user experience when we interact with technology you think about all of the channels that we interact with as employees but also as customers of an agency and really focus on the total experience that as technology leaders we give to the people who work in our agencies and we give to the people who use the services of our agencies and if we can do that we're i am confident that we're going to be creating. Um great experiences for all. And those great experiences become very sticky, and they they are a strong factor in retaining people in our in our
0: organizations. Jonathan, it's always a pleasure. thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you, Billy. It was a pleasure to be here. You can learn more about the report from the partnership for Public service at the dot com. Coming on Tuesday's episode of the Daily Scoop podcast, revolutionizing defense department operations with artificial intelligence. You'll hear from DOD's director for digital services, Katie Savage. That show debuts Tuesday afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your podcasts. In a panel moderated by Fortinet's Felipe Fernandez at last week's Security Transformation Summit produced by FedScoop, Director of the Zero Trust Portfolio Management Office at the Defense Department, Randy Resnick, and CIO at the Department of Health and Human Services Office of Inspector General, Gerald Karen, both give an update on their agency's Zero Trust journey.
2: So the Department of Defense started and set up a Zero Trust Portfolio Office in uh, basically February, 2022. So we've been um, in business now for the last uh, 10, close to 11 months. Um, and we were charged with essentially accelerating zero trust inside the DOD, both on the Nipper net and also on the CIPR net. Uh, so accelerating zero trust to us meant really laying down a zero trust infrastructure and network, what it would take to actually achieve an effect. Uh, so uh, the questions were, what is that, that effect and how do we do it? Um, So uh, through the team and working with uh, uh, other agencies like NSA, DISA, uh, Cyber Command, uh, we uh, over the last 10 months were able to define for the DoD what zero trust meant for us. Uh, We were able to uh, determine what our North Star would be uh, because that is really uh, uh, essential. uh, So you know when you have success. Our North Star in the DoD is being able to uh, slow down, stop, contain, frustrate uh, the adversary if they're attacking us. They're doing that arguably right now. Uh, they're being able to go laterally. Uh, our strategy says that uh, very well uh, in the introduction from uh, Honorable Sherman. And so what we want to do with ZT is to stop the adversary, have that effect. And so knowing that that was our destination, we, we worked backwards. Uh, And then we figured out how to get from where we are today to where we need to be in the future. We set a five-year deadline to do that. Uh, We created or explained three courses of action in order to get there. Uh, One is to uh, um, uh, uh, do a a brownfield or a build on the existing infrastructure. The other two are cloud-based. So we think we're really going to be able to do it. Uh, it's a matter of uh, integration, as the uh, um, uh, former speaker spoke about. We need vendor assistance, but we have essentially the strategy, uh, the framework, uh, the skeleton, um, the roadmap, uh, uh, we believe, for the DoD to get there. Yeah, it's outstanding,
3: and a, it's a great read if you haven't got onto it. Uh, just a, a very thoughtful document, I can tell there was a lot of work done in there, a lot of collaboration. Uh, so, you know, from speaking from an industry perspective, um, it's always great when you know, our customers provide targets um, so that way, like General Norris, General Norris pointed out, you when know, we're emailing, we're making sure we're talking about things that are relevant. Uh, we're not filling his inbox with anything that you know, may not care about. So we do appreciate that and all the work that went into it. Uh, Jerry, if you could take a second uh, to talk about you know, where you've seen Zero Trust come along in the civilian agencies at HSS specifically, if you want to get there.
4: Yeah, um, our journey has been well, when I started a year and a half ago, before executive orders and everything, was education, first of all. Um, So, we did a lot of education on what zero trust was. Um, Then, we did our inventory. So, we used DOD's uh, pillars and functions and said, if I didn't spend a penny, how am I doing? Or what am I doing? Or what can I do? Um, Even if I'm not doing it with, with what I have invested in already. So, then we had our as is. So, what we took. Then we took that and then we developed um, and we rated our maturity in each of those using the DHS maturity model. And then um, we identified, i I'd identified six foundation projects that we had to do to build off. That is, we don't have these. These are five, six things that we have to do. We can build off these, um, understanding what the as is. And now we have our roadmap for the next few years. Now. We're going to adjust that roadmap based off the strategy that was released because I like some of the 91 points that are in there um, to identify as well and take that into consideration. So we're using a lot of materials from all different sources, um, you know, and that roadmap has set us off so we know what projects we have to do uh, for the next few years right now. Um, so there was a lot of planning, a lot of education, a lot of inventory this past year. But now we have some procurements going. We have where the rubber's starting to meet the road, where we're actually going to be deploying some things. Um, We've educated our user base as well, because there are going to be changes coming along in the future. And that served two different purposes is we're using this as a modernization, not just a security effort. So understanding what the benefits that we anticipating to bring to them, like better performance because we're not here pinning them back to a data center just to go back out to the cloud, things like that. But also understanding the personas out there so we can get the right data, the right people at the right time, and what do they need, and how do they want to work. Not how do they work, but how do they want to work so we can build in those requirements as we take this journey on. So basically, them understanding things might change. but what is it that you want or how do you want to work? What's the data that's important to you? So we build those personas going forward and then hopefully it's less friction when we start making these changes because we've included them and taken their requirements into account as a modernization effort too. That's great
3: and you said something really important there. I think you said uh, achieving zero trust is also a modernization effort and that's something that resonated with something Randy said previously on the talk circuit. Uh, as we like to call this, and I, and, and I love that uh, because there's a lot of work that goes into meeting zero trust capabilities that target level that was defined in, in the zero trust uh, the DoD zero trust uh, strategy. Um, but you know, agencies and departments, sub departments are going to look for well, when's it start getting easier? Um, you know, when does you know do, after my baseline, after the strategy and understanding and educating my people, you know, uh, when do we start implementing? Part of this and it looks a little bit easier it's, it's a conditioned uh, role uh, as part of our lives it's, it's what we know how to do um, you know and so with that I, I just like to ask you know how would you uh, communicate to agencies you know their priorities then to to move along the journey more efficiently you know in achieving the target level or even advance for, for those with uh, nss um, but um, uh, going from there how do you how do you think they should prioritize you know achieving or maturing their, their levels within the different pillars in their Zero Trust journey? Uh,
2: so uh, because technology is out there with solutions in the vendor community, I would have to say that um, uh, starting off at the user pillar, the data pillar, and the device pillar is likely the areas that I would focus on first. And the reason why I say that is because the way we laid out our you know, Target 91, uh, you really do need to have a, uh, a, a accurate list of your users that are allowed to go onto the infrastructure, uh, the devices uh, which you're allowing to get onto the infrastructure, and then by definition, preventing anything that's not authorized not to get on. So you could think of that almost as the trunk of a tree, and uh, really all that information that data feeds into... Uh, a lot of the other uh, remaining pillars of zero trust, and uh, there's a cross, there's a cross integration that happens that's not not really clear uh, when you see a picture, at least our picture of um, uh, the seven pillars. You know, it seems like it's all vertical, but certainly there's cross connects that go in between, and there's dependencies across all seven of them. Uh, so uh, I would start off with the user, device, and data. Let me briefly just speak about that. Uh, getting a accurate uh, user inventory is critical. And then making sure that you implement that and you clean up your active directories and other things, uh, you know, other accesses that uh, former employees may have had or service members, we, you ha- you, we ha- need to get rid of that. Uh, so you have only authorized users. Uh, same thing with uh, the devices. Uh, we also have to make sure that when the devices sign on, I'm, I'm using a solution like Comply to connect in the DoD. We want to make sure that the device is also patched to the latest patch. That's important. Uh, and then in terms of data, at least from the DoD perspective, we really need to get to a data tagging and labeling standard. We don't have one in the DoD, uh, and that's critical to get to the later stages of zero trust especially if you want to go to advanced Zero Trust, especially if you want to get sophisticated in the uh, visibility and analytics pieces of Zero Trust, because if you don't know what data you're sitting on, if it's not properly tagged or labeled, it's very difficult to do that analytics on. Uh, Also, sharing information, you really need a tag and label. So we're taking that on uh, in this fiscal year, we're working with the CDAO, and we're gonna work very, very hard to try to get a tagging and a labeling standard proposed uh, before the fiscal year is out. It's a high, uh, it's a high uh, mark, we'll try to do it. Uh, that's where I would start first. That's a good year of work for the average size uh, uh, organization, and it's foundational to the rest of the, rest of, uh, the pillars.
4: Yeah, I I would add, um, you know, it it depends on where you're at as well. Um, And those are all good things as well and I would would totally agree with them. But I think one thing I think that goes along with what Randy's talking about is the non-technical aspects of things. And it's that governance and what are your risk tolerances for when you have that user, how they're authenticating, that machine, what is that status, what, depending on the target that they're trying to access, what is that tolerance that you're going to set for, to allow them access? And then what level will that be at? And then that continuous monitoring of it because factors change. So this isn't a one time through the door thing. So. I think going along with all of those things that Randy was talking about is the non-technical, the risk tolerances, the risk thresholds, and those policies that you're going to set. What is the minimum things that I need to know to let you in that door, and then once you're in that door, what are my thresholds if factors change? So a lot of people focus on tools and technical and and all of that, but the governance and the policy and the, methodology and the thresholds that you're going to build have to go along and be built into all of that. So, you know, I, you refer to seven pillars. I like to say there's that eight that goes through all the pillars and it is that governance because you can do identity, you can do the endpoint, you can do all the, but they, it all has to integrate and work together and that governance goes through across all of that. So I think it's very important to keep that in mind, the non-technical things that you got to think about. Because you've got to tell the tools what to do. They're not automagical. So that's something that people got to factor.
2: Yeah, I'd like to foot stomp on that also. Uh, you know, Zero Trust is not an IT solution only. Uh, you, know, you have to train your personnel. There's policies of, uh, that need, need to be updated, training. Uh, uh, there's a whole slew of other things to, that contribute to the success of the IT of Zero Trust.
3: Thank you. That was great information. Uh, what I got out of that was ICAM is very important. Your application device user inventory very important, and you got a year to get there if you're in the DoD, says Randy. So, <laughs> but, uh, um, plus or minus. Right, right, right. Uh, but uh, we have uh, just a, over a minute left, and I think so. If I'm playing uh, an agency or a CIO CISO, um, I'm saying, hey, gentlemen, this all sounds wonderful, but uh, you know. What do I have at my disposal to actually get there? What, what funding is kind of available? What vehicles are available? What offices should I seek guidance from? And, and how do I do that? And, and so I was wondering if, if you could just share some tips for the community in the DOD and the federal civilian space of how they can get started. They know what they got to do. You know, what's available to help them do that?
2: So in the DOD, we have a, a, a fiscal process, the POM process, uh, 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 which allows agencies and organizations to ask for dollars. The problem is that even if you get the dollars approved, it takes two years to get the dollars. So um, I would suggest to work with the portfolio office and we will try to advocate for you for this year dollars, move things around. Uh, You know, uh, I don't wanna say it's easy, but it could be done. There's money that's available. Uh, and uh, this is a very high priority in the DoD. So if there's a legitimate need for some bridge money after uh, you know you analyze your budgets and you need a little extra, I would say just engage with the Zero Trust Portfolio Office. We'll advocate for you and work with you with Cape and others to uh, make sure that we could fill that two-year gap before your real funds start. Thank you, uh, Jerry. Do you have anything?
4: Yeah, being in a two-year planning cycle, um, so of course you know our FY24, which we have to do is. You know, that's something that we put plans in for. I've had to reprioritize. The things that are within my control, reprior- I've reprioritized because I want to get things started now. And uh, I'm chasing TMF funds right now, um, which is the technology modernization fund. It's something that I'm going after and hopefully um, getting through phase one, uh, fortunately, and moving to phase two. So I'm excited about that. I think that's going to be a game changer for, for what we uh, have identified that we want to do. So there's that out there as well.
0: Again, that's DOD's Randy Resnick and HHS OIG's Gerald Karen. You can find a link to the entire Security Transformation Summit on demand at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you've already rated the podcast on your platform of choice, thanks. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher help put the show together and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. We'll talk to you again Tuesday afternoon. Until then, I'm your host, Billy Mitchell. Thanks for listening.